So what am I doing up here? Thank you for asking. (laughs) Uh, I went to a preaching seminar back in March, and the theme was the conviction of the authority of God's Word. Um, I was in the uh, shed a couple weeks ago, and I saw the pulpit was out there. It was all mildewy, and it was starting to get rotten from the water. And I thought, what a great metaphor for our culture and how it treats God's Word. It's put in the storage, and it's allowed to mildew, and it's allowed to kind of fall apart. And the pulpit has always been the authority of God's Word. That's why as Protestants, we place it above the communion table. It's not the Mass, but it's God's Word that has the authority. So I cleaned it up, and I thought, since I cleaned it up, why not use it? Now, it's not sacred. It is not the Ark of the Covenant. Like the Ark of the Covenant, it may be carried off someday, so don't have a heart attack. It's okay. But I think in our culture and in our world, it's just a symbol of authority. And I've been under conviction over the last few months that God's Word is our authority. Amen? It is the Word of God. It is the truth that God has given to us. It's every, every uh, assertion that the Word of God makes is true, and we are obligated to believe it, obey it, and understand it. There's not 500 interpretations of a verse. There is one. And our job as believers is to do the hard work and the study. So I'm up here because, you know what? You all look a lot more prettier up here. We got a great line of sight, and we can see. So let's dig in uh, to God's Word. If you uh, have a Bible, turn to Habakkuk. Uh, The Pew Bibles is page uh, 785. Have you ever had a sense of foreboding in your life? That feeling of anxiety or unease? There's no rational reason for it. It's just something you fear that's on the horizon. There was a sense of foreboding in the kingdom of Judah in the Old Testament. Now, the kingdom of Judah wasn't based on an irrational fear, but it was based on the warnings of God given through the prophets. The history of Israel goes like this. God delivered them out of Egypt to go to the promised land, and he said, you will stay in the promised land as long as you remain faithful to me and my word. As long as you obey my commands, this land is given to you conditionally. If not, invaders will come in and they will take you out of this land. So we know through the uh, history of the Old Testament, uh, the people rebelled against God. There was always a remnant who was faithful to God. There was always a remnant who believed, but there were wicked kings and wicked people. And through uh, the course of David and Solomon, the kingdom was divided. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Babylonians then came in. There's this mighty uh, country, this mighty empire. And they conquered the Assyrians, and then they conquered Egypt, and they would soon come to crush Judah. Now, the prophets had announced that this was coming. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention, the Bible tells us. And there was a great unrest in Judah. So toward the end of Judah's history, Josiah was a good king. And when he died, his son Jehoahaz rose to the throne. And in three months, Egypt came and invaded Judah. They took Jehoahaz off the throne, and then they placed his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. Talk about political intrigue and maneuvering. Jehoiakim was an evil, ungodly, and rebellious. We read in 2 Chronicles 36, He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And against him came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. And so God had foretold that all this was going to happen. And so this was that sense of of foreboding. We know it's coming, we just don't know when. 
And so Habakkuk is the first of the prophets to announce this terrible judgment. Habakkuk's uh, prophecy overlapped of uh, that with Jeremiah and Daniel. And Jeremiah and Daniel are probably a little more famous than Habakkuk. Habakkuk is considered one of the minor prophets, not because his message wasn't important, but just because he didn't write as much. He only has a few pages in Scripture compared to Jeremiah and Isaiah. They have a lot longer. So it's minor, not in quality, but in quantity. And so on the eve of this impending invasion by the Babylonians, Habakkuk wrote this prophecy. He lamented the decay and the violence, the fighting, and the perverted justice that surrounded him. And what you're going to find as we walk through the book of Habakkuk, you're going to be like, he could have been living today. He could have been writing about our world today. So look, turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And here's what he said. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction. And violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. This is God talking. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. like They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk starts to write about the lament that he sees over the nation as a whole and over the impending doom. We don't really know much about Habakkuk, but one thing we do know is he's a follower of the Lord and he submitted to the Lord's will. It's interesting, Habakkuk's name means one who embraces. It's almost like God chose Habakkuk to say, Habakkuk, your name means one who embraces. And I want you to embrace my people. I want you to take them in my arms, much like a parent does with a crying child, to comfort the child and to assure the child and to bring the child some peace. And so God chooses Habakkuk and says, Habakkuk, I want you to embrace my people that I will be making it better soon. Just hang on. But Habakkuk doesn't question or hesitate to question God. This is called in the scripture a form of literature called theodicy. You have the definition on your notes because it's important that we understand this. It comes from two Greek words, and the Greek words mean divine justice. It seeks to answer how a benevolent, omnipotent, omnipresent God allows suffering and pain in his creation. Have you ever asked God that? Lord, I look around. And I see all of the horrible things that are happening. How can you allow this? I thought you were good. I thought you were loving. I thought you were all powerful. I thought you were all present. Lord, I even say nothing is impossible for you. But I look around and I see it seems kind of impossible. It seems like you're not doing anything. If you've ever asked God those questions, you are in good company. You're not only in company with Habakkuk. But you are in company with many of the Old Testament saints and many of the New Testament saints and many of the current Testament saints. You 
are in good company. Habakkuk's complaint was twofold. Here's two things that God, that Habakkuk asked God about, and see if you've ever asked God this yourself. The first one, he says, is in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? God, why don't you hear me? The key word is what? Indifferent. You see, Habakkuk was delayed in God's, uh, Habakkuk was, uh, was perplexed by God's delay in seeming to bring about what Habakkuk knew God could do, but wondered why God seemed so silent and far away. Psalm 13 says this. Put yourself in the psalmist's shoes and see if you've ever been here. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Have you ever asked those questions? Have you ever been in that place with God where some very horrible, terrible things have happened or are happening and you can relate to the psalmist? You say, Lord, have you forgotten me? God, why are you hiding your face from me? Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm in anguish here. Don't you notice me? You know, Jesus felt the same way. Jesus quoted Psalm 22. Here's what Psalm 22, Jesus on the cross. Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. We feel that way in life. We feel that there's no one to help. We feel that we are all alone. We feel so very isolated. And we cry out to God. The second question Habakkuk asks is in verse 2. The second part of verse 2, why doesn't God help? God, are you insensitive? Okay, so maybe you hear me. Maybe you're not indifferent. Maybe you hear me, but maybe you just don't care. Maybe you're just insensitive to my pain. Maybe you're just insensitive to my anguish. Maybe you are unwilling to save me from this. So Habakkuk asked these two questions. Lord, why do you tolerate wrong? Habakkuk looked around and he saw all the things that were going on. Look at all the ways that he described the climate he was in in verses 3 and 4. Iniquity, wrong, destruction, violence, strife, contention. That describes our world, doesn't it? Even though Habakkuk lived thousands of years ago, he could be speaking to us today. You see, what happens is what we know of God, his goodness and his holiness and his power is not what we experience. And we are put in this bind where we say, Lord, I know who you are. I read about who you are in the scripture, that you are a good God, that you're a loving God, that you're a kind God, that you're a powerful God. But God, I just don't see it. I look around my life. The things that are happening in my life personally, or in my family, or in my community, or in my country, or in the world. Lord, I see what's happening, and it doesn't align up with who you are. And Habakkuk says, you know what the greatest tragedy is? In verse 4, the law, he says, is powerless or paralyzed. He said his own people knew God's word, but they weren't doing God's word. It's one thing for things to be happening out there. But Habakkuk is very mindful that there are things happening in us. We tolerate sin. At the same time, we complain and rail against the world that we live in. So here's what God does. God comes in and he says, you know what? You are too nearsighted. You are suffering from myopia. What I want you to do is to lift your eyes up and to look out because I'm doing something. I want you to get your eyes off the immediate situation. And I want you to look out onto the international horizons. 
You know, God isn't just working in our homes. God's working in the world. The entire world. He's got the half of the world in his hands. Is that how the song goes? No, tell me. He's got the whole world. So God is sovereign over the entire world. And so he reminds his people that you perhaps are too nearsighted. You need to look out and get the big view of what I am doing. And so God says, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to raise up this awful people. The Babylonians are going to come in. They're dreaded and fearsome. They're swift uh, like leopards. They gather captives like the sand. They just scoop up people. Their God is their might. We are powerful, and because it's not that even might makes right, but that might makes us divine. And so they come in, and so Habakkuk is questioning. So he's in this place, and maybe you're in that place today. You look around and you say, Lord, why is this happening? I know who you are. I know what you reveal to us in your word of who you are. But at the same time, Lord, I see the situations in my life and the things that I'm experiencing in my life. And yes, you say you're good, but it doesn't seem very good. Yes, you say you're powerful, but this thing isn't changing. Yes, you say you care, but God, right now, it just seems like you just don't really care. If we're honest, we've all been there. If you're not there today, maybe you have the experience of having been there before. But don't get too arrogant and say, I'll never be there, because you just might. And so we come to Habakkuk, and he cries out to the Lord. And I think this beginning of the book of Habakkuk teaches us a couple things about questioning God. Now, questioning God may be a new concept for you. You were brought up to be compliant. You know what compliant means? You never ask questions. You never, you always do the thing because it was a way to get praise. It was a way to get honor. It was a way to be told you were a good boy, a good girl, right? So compliant, we're never taught to, to, to wonder and to question. So questioning God may be, a, may be a new thing for you. Now, now, that's the compliant child, but then there's also the rebellious child, right? Like, I don't care what you say, I'm just going to do the opposite, and so, as always, Scripture is, it's, it's in the middle, right? It's, we don't rebel, we don't sin. Habakkuk says in verse 4 that the law was paralyzed. But at the same time, we don't just say, huh, yeah. Why? Because we're human. So there's a couple things that we can learn about questioning God. I just want to encourage you today, with maybe in your own life, that the, you've been in this bind where things aren't right, And yet you're like, I don't know if I can ask God about this. You can ask. Here's why we know. Here's some things from Habakkuk. I want you to take these and and practice these this week. The first one is this. Rough times in life produce honest doubt and confusion. They just do. In Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah writes about Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what he says. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when he finally came and destroyed Judah... Jeremiah says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies, and then he has spewed us out. Now, I don't know about you, but Jeremiah is in some honest doubt and confusion about the situation. Lord, the Babylonians have come, and they've not only devoured us, but they threw us back out. And Lord, what is going on here? Listen, we are not robots and we are not Stoics. We are human beings. You know what a Stoic is? A Stoic comes from the philosophical school of Stoicism. 
And Stoicism says this, you never show on your face or in your person that you are enduring pain or hardship. You can be enduring pain and hardship, but you never show it. You are stoic. And we've, heard, we've used that term. They, they took it stoically. They got their arm cut off and they never flinched because their face was like granite. Listen, we are not stoics. The British would say, keep a stiff upper lip. What's the opposite of a stiff upper lip? A lip that is quivering and shaking because we are feeling some pain. We are feeling emotion. Being a believer doesn't mean you never feel or worry or or anxious. You know why? Because the New Testament writers had to tell us, do not fear, do not be anxious, don't worry, Jesus said. Why would he have to tell us that? Because we do. You don't have to tell somebody not to do something they're not doing. And so we have those things in the scripture. In the Old Testament, Elkanah and Hannah wanted a child, but Hannah was not able to conceive. And so she prayed to the Lord. She was living in this place. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, it gives us the content of her life and of her prayer. It says this, And she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Do you know what was happening? Her lip was quivering. She didn't have a stiff upper lip. She was not stoic. She was pouring her heart out to the Lord. Eli thought she was drunk. It's always funny in the scripture, whenever somebody's having a spiritual experience, it must be because they're drunk, right? And so she says, she says, not so, my Lord. I'm a woman who is, listen to what she says. I am deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. That's who we are. We experience great anguish and grief. And God doesn't say, suck it up. What does he say? I want you to pour it out. Because hard times produce honest doubt and honest confusion. Greg Pruitt, in a book on prayer, says this. Too often, insincere cheerfulness is a hallmark of Christianity. You know what insincere cheerfulness is? La, 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 how you doing? I'm doing great. My world's falling apart. And so I got this insincere thing. We know the lingo, right? I'm just blessed. It's better to be above ground than below ground. I'm just happy to be upright today. And inside, you're dying. He says, sometimes we assume that if we're suffering, we must be doing something wrong. Actually, biblical Christianity allows for the keening wail of a suffering complaint when the desolation of the world overwhelms us. That's biblical Christianity. When the desolation of the world, like Habakkuk was looking at, maybe like you're experiencing, when that overwhelms us, biblical Christianity says you should be offering a suffering complaint. Don't hold it in. Don't just suck it up. He goes on. Sometimes the only faithful response to the torment we see around us is to cry out for an answer from the only one who has sufficient magnificence and glory to set it right. And to bring justice to this fallen world. Sometimes the only question that makes sense to us is how long? We don't mind suffering. We just don't want to be long. We want to be over like that. In the book of Revelation, the soul's under the altar. You know what the question that they ask? They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Listen. 
Rough times produce honest doubt and confusion. And if you are in a rough time and you are doubting and you are confused, you are in, you are in, a, a, in biblical territory. Because the people of God have always doubted honestly and have had confusion. Not only Hannah and Jeremiah, but also all kinds of other saints and people that you know. So don't ever beat yourself up if you say, I have some honest doubt and confusion. The second thing we learn from Habakkuk is this, is that questioning God is not sinful. Yes, it's done with respect. We don't go to God casually like we do one of our friends. But Habakkuk's questioning, listen, Habakkuk's questioning does not lessen his faith in God. We have been given this this guilt trip that if you are doubting, you don't have any faith. Yes, it's because I have faith that I can doubt. I have faith in God's promises, but I don't see them right now. So now I'm kind of doubting, not if he's going to fulfill them, but when he's going to fulfill them. You see, honest doubting is, how long, Lord, have you forgotten me? Not only Habakkuk, but Job and others in the Bible. They Listen, they show us it's okay to question. It's okay to question God. God told Abraham in Genesis that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because their wickedness and sin was very serious. And do you know what Abraham's response was? It wasn't, oh, that sounds like a great idea. See you later, Lord. No, what does it say? Genesis 18, 23 says this. I love this. Abraham drew near, and you know what he did? He asked God a question. Abraham drew near, and he says, will you indeed sweep the righteous away with with the wicked? So God told Abraham what he was going to do. And Abraham started ending in, uh, entering in this dialogue. And you know what his dialogue was? His dialogue was question. He drew near. Suppose Abraham, then he, then he asked more questions. Suppose there's 50 people. God says, well, for 50, I'll spare the city. Then Abraham asked another question. Suppose there's 45. And God says, well, for the sake of 45, I won't destroy the city. Then God, Abraham asked another question. How about 40? And God says, well, for 40, I won't destroy the city. And then Abraham asked another question. He says, what about 30? And God says, for 30, I won't destroy the city. And Abraham asked another question. And he says, well, what about 10? And God says, even for 10, I'm not going to destroy the city. And Abraham was done asking questions at that point. But it's okay to ask God questions. It's okay to ask. Habakkuk shows that. Abraham shows that. Hannah shows us that. Jesus showed us that. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now listen, if Jesus and Abraham and Job and Habakkuk and Hannah were not afraid to ask God a question, why should we be afraid? We shouldn't. The Boston Globe carries a column it's designed to answer readers' questions, and it listed the top ten of unanswerable questions. And here's one. A little boy wrote this. I'm nine years of age, and I have a cat that eats regularly and needs to go on a diet. He also eats mice when he's out. How many calories are there in a mouse? The boss is like, there's just no answer to that question, young man. Right? We can ask the question, and sometimes there isn't an answer. It's sometimes questions are unanswerable, and sometimes the answers are questionable. That's what Habakkuk does with God. And so God responds, Habakkuk, I've got it all worked out. Don't you worry. I'm going to bring in this ruthless people, and I'm going to take, uh, get, uh, take vengeance. I'm going, to, I'm going to mete out the justice that's needed. Habakkuk was still perplexed. He's like, Lord, you just gave me the answer, and now I'm not sure I like the answer. 
You mean these awful people, the Babylonians, who the, 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 uh, Ju- the people in Judah at the time, they were just soiled saints compared to these Babylonians. Like, these were wicked, awful people. And Habakkuk's like, Lord, I, I think the cure is worse than the disease. And God's like, don't you worry. You just get, get, pick your eyes up. I'm going to have this all worked out. He's still perplexed. And this is where we need faith. Faith is the bridge between our frustration and the fulfillment. That's what faith is. Faith is the bridge between our frustration. We look around and we say, Lord, how long? Lord, why don't you? And what happens until, until something moves, right? That's, that's what faith is. It's that bridge between the now and the, and the fulfillment. It's not questioning God that causes our downfall, but it's refusing to trust God that causes our downfall. We can trust even without an answer. That's why honest doubt and confusion are not sinful because we are honestly asking of God. We are honestly going to him with our confusion and our doubt. And my faith means I still trust him even in my doubt and in my confusion. Third thing we learn from Habakkuk is this. His misunderstandings are resolved in open dialogue. Listen, God is a God of communication. In Genesis chapter 1, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. And what did God do? God spoke. He is a speaking God. God is a communicative God. That is how he connects with us. So God is a communicating God. We are made in God's image. So here's, listen, here's the cool thing. God is a God who communicates We are made in his image, which means what? God can communicate with us. It's the connection. Remember those old movies where you see you had a, you had party lines and you had a call and there was a switchboard operator and she would move the things back and forth, uh, trying to get through and, and then she wouldn't hang up. She would listen to the phone call while somebody was connected, right? This, this connect. That's what God does. He connects us. He's created us in his image. He's a, a speaking, communicating God, and we are able to understand him in normal, human, interactive communication. In other words, God, in normal human language, given to us in his word, through the apostles and the prophets, is able to get a message to us. And because of that, misunderstandings are resolved in open dialogue. This is what Habakkuk does. It's this open dialogue with who? It's him and God. That's an open dialogue. Inner dialogue does not produce resolution, but it produces isolation. Have you ever been alone with your thoughts? Something, some situation is very hard, and I don't want to talk to anybody, I don't want to open up, I don't want to do anything, and you're just alone with your thoughts. What does that do for us? It makes us feel more isolated. It makes us feel more angry. We become more confused. Alone with our thoughts, it tends to heighten whatever experience that is going on in our lives. But misunderstandings are are resolved in open dialogue. Here's one thing I found. uh, Kristen, it'll be 25 years in a couple weeks. Here's one thing I found out. She is not a, a mind reader. I have to open my mouth. And tell her what's going on. It's very painful. I wish she had the gift of mind reading. Then I could go on with my life. And she could just pull in there and get out the stuff she wanted. And wouldn't wouldn't that be great? 
we're laughing because we know it doesn't work. We have a misunderstanding. And I'm just like, pull it out. Pull it out. I don't need to. You need to say something. Misunderstandings are never resolved without communication. There is always assumptions. There is always more hurt. There is more unresolved things. There is more, uh, just more confusion. And God understands that. And so what God wants is he wants us to talk to him. That's what Habakkuk is doing. He's asking God. He's communicating to God. We talk to God and God says, here, I'm talking back to you. I give you my word in order that you don't have to be confused. How do we know that? The psalmist says this in Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. Listen to what the psalmist says. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands. Oh, man, we did it all the time. Take our life in our own hands. I know better than God. I'm going to do it my way. Even though I take my own life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees uh, to the very end. It's God. Open dialogue. I open my mouth and God opens his mouth. And we are in this conversation Habakkuk confronted the Lord when he thought the Lord was forgetting his promises. God wasn't ignoring his promises, but Habakkuk couldn't see how God was going to fulfill those promises. Someone said this, where God has placed a period, don't put a question mark. When God has said something, don't put a question mark. He said it and he will do it. Because our questions are not to get God to change his character, but to help us to make sense of our circumstances. There's a difference between asking for information and clarity and asking because we're trying to manipulate. Kids, it's time to go to bed. Oh, can I just stay up another 20 minutes? Why are they asking a question? To manipulate to get me to change my mind, to say, okay, you can have another 20 minutes. It wasn't clarification, but it was manipulation. Go to bed. Two minutes later, can I get a drink of water? Why are they asking the question? To disobey, to put off obeying, not for information, but for manipulation. I'm cold. Can I have another blanket? I'm hungry. Can I get a snack? And 45 minutes later, they're still asking questions and they're still not in bed. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about questioning God. We're not questioning him to manipulate him. We're not questioning him in order so that he says, oh, you know what? You're right. We question him, not for manipulation, but for some information. Lord, Lord, I need some clarity here. I I think I have a misunderstanding, perhaps, about what you said you would do and what you said you wouldn't do. And so, Lord, I just need... And so how do we do that? In this open dialogue, God speaks to us in his word. We cry out, pour out our hearts to him, and it's this communication. The problem for Habakkuk and us is we often see all the evil out there, and we don't see the evil in here. God says, I want you to have a right understanding. Listen, God is more interested in changing our hearts than our happenings. 
He will change circumstances. But what he wants is, in the middle of our circumstances, is for us to have a heart that still reflects Jesus. We have this open dialogue, prayer and the word. And what God is doing is he's changing our character and our hearts in the middle of our circumstances. We just want the situation to go away. And what happens is if the situation just goes away, we have not changed. But in the midst of that difficult circumstance, God can do some work in us. This leads us to point number four, because here's what happens if we don't. It's better to express exasperation than to let it fester into bitterness. We often ask questions as a form of interrogation because we want to find the reason or the culprit. When we are confused, we look for something not to explain or someone not to explain, but to blame. And in our questions, often what we're doing is it's not coming from a sincere heart of honest doubt and confusion. It's just, I am going to find who is at fault. Brene Brown says this, blame is simply discharging of pain and discomfort. You know why we blame? Because we have pain and discomfort. She says we blame when we're uncomfortable and experience pain, when we're vulnerable, angry, hurt, in shame, grieving. There's nothing productive about blame, and it often involves shaming someone or just being mean. We all get to those places where we want to blame someone, and what happens is then we start to feel self-righteous. And because in my self-righteous, I am right and you are wrong, then what happens is I can become mean and nasty, and I don't feel bad about it because I'm justified. I can throw you under the bus. I can slander you on Facebook. I can do all this stuff because I'm justified. You're at fault and I'm not. We also not just blame others. We have self-blame as well. I'm just a stupid person. I'm just an idiot. I'm just awful. There's nothing good about me, right? We can do that to ourselves as well. Jesus had a friend, Lazarus, who was sick. And the Bible says Jesus knew he was sick. And the Bible says specifically in John chapter 11 that he didn't go for a couple days and and, and Lazarus died. And so when Jesus delayed in going to him, Lazarus died. And when Jesus showed up, do you know what both of Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, do you know what both of them did? They asked him a question. And you know what the question was? Lord, or they made a statement, Lord, if you had been here. But the question is what? Why weren't you here? They were trying to blame. They were interrogating Jesus because they were trying to find some reason why the brother died when Jesus had it within his power to not allow Lazarus to die. You see, what happens is it was a form of theodicy. They knew Jesus could heal. They knew Jesus could do all kinds of things, and yet Jesus didn't. And so their experience was, Jesus, why didn't you come? Why were you so long? Why did you delay? Did you hear our cry for help? We wanted you to come, but you didn't come. See, there's these honest expressions of exasperation. Job chapter 10, verse 1 says this, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. You know what Job says? In my, my life, I am in this awful place. My children are dead. My land is gone. I've got sores that I'm scraping with pieces of a flower pot. And Lord, here's what 
what Job said was, I'm going to give free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. Why? Because if the bitterness of the soul doesn't speak out, it will get more bitter. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, calls it what? This root of bitterness. You know why it's called a root of bitterness? Because the root does what? It goes down into the ground, into that dark place that we don't see. You know, they always say the size of the tree, the root system is three times as large as the tree. But we don't see it. Why? Because it's under the ground. And the Bible says our bitterness becomes like that root because it gets down into our lives and we don't necessarily see it or show it, but it's there. And everything that's buried has a high rate of resurrection. It just does. And voicing our complaint to God is better than being bitter. We have this venom in our bitterness. Do you know who the only person that our venom will not kill or hurt? God. The bitterness of our venom, of our, of our words, will hurt people. It's the power of life and death, the Bible says. But the only one who our venom will not hurt is God. So why don't we talk to him? Why don't we complain to him? I want to be more like Job, don't you? Speak out in the bitterness of my soul. Give free ray to my complaint. Not disrespectful and still reverence for God, but say, Lord, you and I need to have a talk. (laughs) Why is this happening? I've served you faithfully. I've done everything right. I'm doing all this stuff. And Lord, now here's this thing. Why is this happening? And how long is it going to take before you finally hear me and start to work in my life? And Habakkuk teaches us what? It's better to express exasperation than to let it fester into bitterness. It's better, as Job said, to give free reign to our complaints. To give free reign to the bitterness of our soul. It's the cleansing process that goes. A friend once asked Isidore Robbie, he was a Nobel Peace, a prize winner in science, how he became a scientist. And Robbie replied that every day after school, his mother would talk to him about his school day. She wasn't so much interested in what he had learned that day, but she always inquired, did you ask a good question today? Asking good questions, Robbie said, made me become a scientist. And I wonder if asking good questions of God makes us better students of God. Just a question. You see what happens in our life? We will complain and voice our exasperations. We just will. We will give free reign and we will vent our frustration. Most likely, we will vent and give free reign to those exasperations to people who don't really want to hear it to begin with. (laughs) We'll just go on and on and on and on and on. You go to the you go to get your hair done, and uh, you go to where Miss Jenny works, get your hair done, but she's busy with somebody else, and somebody new comes, and you're like, oh, please, don't start telling me about all your problems. You're captive under that hair dryer for how, 45 minutes, right? Like, don't, please don't start to tell me all your problems. Or you sit the next to somebody on the, on, the, on the airplane, and you're like, please don't talk to me, right? Uh, why? We're going to vent. We just are. And when we vent, listen, God wants to hear it. Now, there are people in your life that want to hear it as well because they want to walk with you and they want to minister to you. But God always wants to hear it. Maybe today you're struggling with how long. You just feel that God is indifferent. 
why doesn't he hear? Lord, I've been praying about this for a long time, and I'm just tired. I just feel like you don't hear. Or maybe you feel like God's insensitive. Lord, I've been praying about this. I feel like you're hearing me, but why don't you do something? Why don't you help? Will you not save me? You're in good company with the, with the prophets of old. You're in good company with Habakkuk. Habakkuk would call you up and said, hey, let's meet at Starbucks. We've got some talking to do and some questions to ask. And the Bible says, ask and voice those complaints to God. Because why? Because Habakkuk did not get reprimanded for the questions. He didn't get reprimanded for this open dialogue with God. You see, apart from Jesus, though, we don't get a clear answer to those questions. But enter Jesus, and we get a clear answer. It's not a proposition, but it's a person. Here's the clear answer that we get in Jesus. Jesus, listen, Jesus is God's answer that, yes, I hear, and yes, I save. When God sent Jesus, Jesus hears. In fact, in 1 John, says, this is a confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask according to his will, he hears. When you're in Christ, when you're in Christ, Jesus hears. He is the one who intercedes. He's the high priest that goes between us and God. He hears. You don't need the operator. You don't need the person doing the wires. You've got Jesus, your high priest, the Holy Spirit. We looked at last week, intercedes with words and groanings. And because of Jesus... He saves. Hebrews says this, We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Because of Jesus, we are saved. Here's the thing about God. God knows the beginning from the end. I love Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. When you don't see the end, God sees the end. When you don't think, understand how things are going to work out, do you know what happens? God says, you know, I got this. Because I got the end from the beginning. You don't see that, but I see that. He tells Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God did a work in our lives. God did a work for us that we wouldn't believe it if we were told. But we were told. God came to earth in the form of a man, a baby in a manger. People didn't believe it. They didn't see him. Why? Because they weren't looking the way God was working. And who found Jesus? The people who asked the questions. The wise men, how did they find Jesus? Hey, do you know where he is? They found him. This baby grew up to be a a man who was crucified, killed, buried. And three days later, he rose again. That was God's plan. And God says to us, you wouldn't believe it. But we do. The tomb is empty. And we see it. I'm going to do a work in your days that you were not believed if told. Listen, we have been told it's called the good news. The good news is what? Jesus came. And God hears us, and God saves us, and we can ask how long, and God says, I got, I got this, I got this. I know it looks a long time to you. When it takes you three minutes to make macaroni and cheese in the microwave, I know three years is a long time. <laughs> 
when I've been around since literally forever, I know a decade looks like a long time. When I work in centuries and not in nanoseconds, I know 25 years seems like a long time. But God says, I got this. I know the end from what? From the beginning. So as we come to our, our prayer time, maybe you just need some prayer. The guys will meet you in the back to your right. Maybe for the rest of all, everybody, too, we say, Lord, I've been afraid to ask you questions because somehow I thought it would indict my faith. I want you to be encouraged today. Don't be afraid to ask God. Next week, we're going to look at what happens when he gives us the answer. But today, for now, we know it's okay to ask. Why? I'm not asking disrespectfully. I'm not asking to to change God's character. God is who he is. I just need some clarity. Maybe you need some clarity in your life or some situations, some, some, some confusion, some, some very hard things. I want to relieve you of the burden that someone has put on your shoulders that if you doubt that somehow you're not faithful, that somehow if you question you don't love God. Do you think Habakkuk didn't love the Lord? Do you think Job didn't love the Lord? Do you think Hannah didn't love the Lord? Do you think Abraham didn't love the Lord? Do you think Jesus didn't love the Lord? We ask questions because we do love him. We ask questions because we do trust. We say, Lord, I believe you. I just don't see it, so I'm just, I just kind of want to know. <laughs> Relieve yourself from that. It's okay. Because you know why? God's a big God. He can take it.